This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz, This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Breaking Points with Crystal and Sagar. We're going to be totally upfront with you. We took a big risk going independent. To make this work, we need your support to beat the corporate media. CNN, Fox, MSNBC, they are ripping this country apart. They are making millions of dollars doing it. To help support our mission of making all of us hate each other less, hate the corrupt ruling class more, support the show. Become a Breaking Points premium member today where you get to watch and listen to the entire show ad-free and uncut an hour early before everyone else. You get to hear our reactions to each other's monologues. You get to participate in weekly Ask Me Anythings. And you don't need to hear our annoying voices pitching you like I am right now. So what are you waiting for? Go to breakingpoints.com, become a premium member today, which is available in the show notes. Enjoy the show, guys. Joining us now to talk about his blockbuster hit movie, Don't Look Up, and some of the interesting conversation around it is uh, Daily Poster's own David Sirota. Great to see you, David. Good to see you. Um, Okay, so first let's put the stats up on the screen. I think we have, this thing has been a monumental success. Um, here are the numbers. This is a, the tweet says, this is wild climate metaphor movie. Don't look up now at 152 million hours viewed on Netflix. This is nearly 40 million hours more than the next nine most popular shows combined. This is one of their biggest releases in history. Um, what do you make of the response and why do you think it struck such a nerve? Well, it's fantastic. It, frankly, it's it's a much larger response than I ever thought, and I'm thrilled about that. Uh, I think that this movie speaks to a lot of different things that people can relate to. I think a lot of folks across the political spectrum uh, feel like the media doesn't take serious issues seriously. I feel like uh, a lot of people across the political spectrum feel like the government doesn't take uh, serious issues seriously. And ultimately, this movie is really about that. I mean, there there is a climate metaphor at play here, which is that we know climate change is happening. The government and the media doesn't take it seriously. But underneath that narrative is really 
whether we as a society are willing to stipulate basic facts and use those facts to constructively uh, make policy and do things to, to address crises. And I think that that's a kind of a universal message. The only people that that message really, I think, probably bothers uh, are people who are creating the problem. <laughs> and, and I think there's been one uh, analysis that I've seen in the movie that I think really gets it right, that our movie isn't really about uh, the, the alleged ignorance of the vast uh, mass public. Our movie is really about how elites and institutions uh, essentially do not operate in the public interest. Yeah, well, it's been interesting, too. The response has not been neatly divided along partisan lines. So um, we have a tear sheet, I think, from National Review, which is a conservative publication. Oh, this is New York Magazine, liberal. Eric Levitz, who's sort of like left liberal, I think you'd describe him as. He says, don't look up, doesn't get the climate crisis. And basically his critique here, which I found a little strange, is that you're not literally talking about the climate crisis, so some of the dynamics are different. And it's like, well, yeah, it's it's an allegory, so okay, that's fine. So a liberal who panned it in certain regards. And then you had National Review, conservative publication. We have that tear sheet as well. And they published a review of it uh, by Kevin D. Williamson that was very, very favorable. So why do you think it has scrambled some of the normal uh, political circuitry? Because, I, look, because I think that it's a message that uh, that maybe potentially uh, polarizes people when it comes to who they see themselves through in this movie. I think mm. that's really the key. When you mm. watch this movie, the question becomes for the audience, who do you align with? Who do you, who are you watching this movie through? Which character are you watching this movie through? And I think lots lots of people go in and they see the movie through the eyes of the scientists. Uh, some people see, maybe see the movie through the eyes of the media, which uh, faces some criticism in this movie. Uh, and look, we knew that this movie was going to uh, create a kind of uh, emotional, uh, polarized, intense response. And you know what? That's that's good. If this movie creates conversations around how we value science, around the climate crisis, around the pandemic and how we've dealt with that, that is frankly, that is the point of, of a film. That is the point of art, is to actually get people to start thinking. We, this movie is not about uh, preaching about, uh, you know, here's a specific set of policies that need to be done. We respect the idea that the audience comes to this movie, and what we want to do is kind of promote and prompt thought, critical thinking. Um, here's what I think is also really important, David, is when I was at MSNBC, I was routinely told, climate doesn't rate. Meaning like, man, we can do the occasional climate change segment, but the audience, this is like feeding the audience vegetables. They really don't want to hear it. They're going to tune out. So better to cover, you know, whatever nonsense is happening in the sort of political reality um, TV world. You just made a film that is an allegory for climate change that makes a lot of really salient important points about how we failed as a society to deal with that threat and any other number of significant threats facing us and facing the world. And it is one of the most popular things that Netflix has ever put out, which I think right. proves the point that if you cover climate in the right way, actually people are extremely interested in what is going on in this front. And I would argue that the, that the vast viewership of the movie uh, is validates the idea that there is a pent-up demand 
for things that touch on the climate crisis, that we've that we've actually created a, a, a discourse in the country where we've suppressed this this fear and and right right correct fear of climate change to the point that we don't talk about it because it's an uncomfortable scary topic and i think the reception to the movie shows that people actually do want to think about it do want to talk about it and my point when it comes to the media in particular is yes there is good climate reporting out there uh, that pops up periodically these big spreads these big investigations that's all really important i think what this movie speaks to is is that is that there's not necessarily that coverage baked into the day-to-day -day coverage. That we do have day-to-day -day coverage of the economy. We do have day-to-day -day coverage of foreign policy. But there is not nearly enough day-to-day -day coverage of the climate crisis. And by that I mean when a politician says something about a bill, one of the top questions is always, well, how will that affect the economy? Another top question should be, well, how is that going to affect the livable ecosystem that supports all human life? And so the hope is, is that one of the takeaways of this movie is that if media folks are watching this is, is for them to ask, how can we put climate coverage and the coverage of science into our day-to-day -day coverage, as opposed to cordoning it off as a kind of special topic area, how do we mm. build it into the day-to-day -day coverage? I think that's very interesting to think about and really important as someone who, you know, is here covering the news and I'm sure can do a better job in many of these respects myself, um, something I'm definitely gonna continue well, you to do, think you about. Guys, look, you, you guys do a great job, but, but I will say this, I'm a journalist too. M making this movie has made me think about how I mm. can do a better job. So the point is, is not to necessarily pick out individuals and say, oh, the, you know, this or that set of organizations are doing good and th these aren't. It's to say, hey, we should all be thinking about how we can all put this into the coverage that we do. Yes, indeed. Congrats on its success. Um, I'm happy for you personally as a friend, but I'm also happy because there are really important messages in this film. It's clearly struck a chord. It's clearly struck a nerve among some people who found it a little too, I guess, on the nose and too uncomfortable. But, um, you know, this type of content that's consumed by a really broad-ranging audience I think is so incredibly important. So thanks for pushing yourself out of your comfort zone and getting involved with this because I think it's been really important. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And thank you guys so much for watching. We're going to have more for you later. One of the great pathologies that we have in society today is the need to be forced to apologize for something that you didn't necessarily do wrong, especially whenever it's only a tiny little group that is upset in the first place. And what we're seeing right now is just one of the perfect examples of this. Comedian Patton Oswalt, who has known fellow comedian Dave Chappelle for 34 years, ran into Dave at a comedy place and took a photo with him and posted it on his Instagram. We have that photo. Let's go ahead and put that up there on the screen. These two guys are both from Washington, D.C. He just said, finished my set. I got a text from Dave Chappelle. Come over to the arena. He is performing next door. Do a guest set. Why not? I waved goodbye to this hell year with a genius I started comedy with 34 years ago. Then he posts a follow-up with a long essay that we have there. 
And he apologizes for posting a photo with Dave. He says, I saw a friend I hadn't seen in a long time this New Year's Eve. We've known each other since we were teens. He's a comedian. 34 years we've been friends. On and on and on. But he eventually goes to the point of, I'm an LGBTQ ally. I'm a loyal friend. There's a friction in those traits. I am sorry, truly sorry. I didn't consider this hurt that this would cause or the depth of that hurt. I've been messaging a lot on IG today. The back and forth has really helped me guide. And basically, Crystal, here's the thing. You've been friends with somebody for 34 years. You tell people who are upset at you to say, hey, he's my friend for 34 years. Just shut your freaking mouth. You know, I don't know what, it's like, I just, this is a pathology. I don't know what, I don't know what, how we can survive and live this way if you're forced to denounce people in the public square. Just because you take a photo with somebody who's your friend of a long time doesn't mean you agree. It's crazy. Just because... Right. Like, are we all have to screen right. every person yes. that we what? interact with or have a photo with for yeah. every one of their views to make sure that they're... I mean, this... It it really is... Who did, Who is he harming by no, no posting one. a photo yeah. with Dave Chappelle, who he's been friends with for more than three decades? <laughs> and so... And here's the, here's the part that really is yeah. pernicious about this and, and why it bothers me, is, like, instead of organizing instead of creating movements instead of building allies mm-hmm. which by the way I did not agree with everything Dave Chappelle said in his special either but Dave Chappelle broadly supports basic LGBTQ rights and could be a potential ally in certain respects sure. rather than trying to reach out to people who don't already agree with you and building a coalition which is always uncomfortable and is going to involve tension and disagreements and all of that All of the energy, I shouldn't say all, a lot of energy goes to this type of politics, which is actually anti-politics. Yeah, bullying Patton Oswalt. makes no difference in the world. Zero difference in the world. And by the way, um, after Patton posted his soul-searching apology, and look, I mean, this is a guy who's clearly trying to figure out what's the right Right. thing to do here, and I want to be good for all this stuff, right? Um, After posting this soul-searching apology, was it enough for people? No. Of course not. No, it wasn't. delete it or because he took it in the first because place. Because you took yeah. Exactly. And so, again, this is the opposite of politics. This is the opposite of coalition building. This is the opposite of trying to build and grow a movement that can actually accomplish change. And I kind of get where it comes from. It comes from this sense of, like, frustration and impotence and politics is broken and you feel like there's, you know, nothing. at least this is a little area where you can exercise some power and force this individual to do something. But ultimately, it is wildly counterproductive. And that's why it is, as, as someone who believes in LGBTQ rights and certainly believes in, you know, economic and social justice, this is wildly counterproductive. Yeah, I mean, one of the hallmarks of a totalitarian movement is when you start to denounce people who are your longtime friends, associates around you. It's sickness. It can, for the minorest of, infra- of it, infractions. For, exactly, for the minorest of, my, most minor of infractions in which you denounce somebody. I mean, he took a photo with the guy. They said they've been friends for 34 years. I didn't even know this. They're both from here in Washington, D.C. Pretty interesting. That does not mean you agree with somebody. I see people who I've worked with in many businesses over the years on the street sometimes. I'm like, hey, man, how you doing? What's going on? Or, hey, you know, what's going on? Sometimes I call them. They ask me for career advice or I ask them what's happening. That doesn't mean that we agree. I just want to see them succeed. It's like somebody who came up. Now, look, somebody says something really egregious or whatever. Then, yeah, you maybe you say, hey, look, like I just don't agree. 
all of that. But if you see somebody, you take a photo on that to then publicly denounce somebody who you proclaim is your friend of 34 years. I think that's a cowardice in the utmost. A, it didn't even work. But B, you cannot have and live in a society like this, period. If you are expected to screen every single one of your longtime friends, the proper response from somebody that you've known and fought in the trenches with or whatever for this long is to say, screw you, he's my friend, or or don't post it at all. But once you have to go ahead and backtrack, it's sickness. It's I, I really think it's awful. Engage with people rather than shunning and censoring them. Ultimately, right. if you if you care about moving the country forward, that's going to be a lot more productive. And that's why it's frustrating that we've moved so far in the opposite direction. It's very, very sad. Okay. All right, All right. guys. Thanks so much for watching. Have a great day. So there's a new movie on a documentary of the unlikely presidential run of the late, great national American hero, in my opinion, Mike Gravel. It's called American Gadfly, and the director, Sky Wallen, joins us now. Great to see you, Sky. Good to see you, Sky. Good to see you. Thank All you. right, so before I forget, just tell people first where they can watch this film, because I watched it, and it is wonderful. Um, I think it's a wonderful reflection on him on the uh, young people who ran his campaign and what it was all about. It's incredibly charming. So just first tell people where they can watch it. Sure. Well, we just launched uh, in North America on all the major internet uh, streaming platforms, iTunes, Prime, uh, Amazon Prime, um, Google Play, YouTube, um, Vudu, a bunch of them, also on cable VOD, and you can get a DVD or Blu-ray if you want one of those on wow. Amazon. So, whoa, yeah. So we got most of You're, the most of the yeah, platforms, you've got it all, going all on. the places. All right. all right. So, why did you want to make <laughs> this film? What was the story that you found compelling that you wanted to tell? I mean, I always wanted to make a story about Mike. And you know, I was in high school in 07, 08. The Iraq War was, you know, I was just sort of coming to awareness about the illegal and this this horrible tragedy of a war. And yeah, so I was really paying attention to the presidential candidates uh, who would replace George Bush. And Mike Gravel was up there throwing rocks and really calling out Democratic Party establishment figures for who were give, paying lip service to wanting to end the war. And George Bush has, you know, overextended himself. Yet Mike was saying, well, you, you're saying this, but you're not doing anything to end this war, actually. Mm -hmm. And so I really respected him for that. And I went back, saw his history, read about his role in op opposing the Vietnam War, reading the Pentagon Papers into the record. And, you know, for years, I, you know, I became a filmmaker and I, I, Mike was always in the back of my mind. I got to do a project about him. I don't know what it is write a script about his role in the Pentagon Papers, maybe, or something. And, you know, in 2019, I read in the Rolling Stone, teenagers have drafted Mike to run for president again. Uh, Mike was 88 at the time. And I thought, wow, this, this could be really funny um, and like a good way to tell Mike's story, but in a contemporary lens, also about youth and a democracy and um, sort of a Goonies take on Washington establishment. And uh, yeah, so it, it kind of worked out perfectly. So we tell two stories, Mike's story and a story about kids and Generation Z and how they're trying to sort of tear down the establishment walls. They, they tend to pop back up 
Um, but yeah, it, it was extraordinary ride. It was, it was so fun to work on. Uh, Mike just had a blast. Um, and he passed away this last year. Um, but you know, he was the, the happiest, happiest old guy you ever saw. That's wonderful. He was a happy guy. Uh, we had the opportunity to interview him twice. Um, he was he was a hilarious character uh, in order of his observations courageous. on politics. And very courageous, yeah. absolutely, in terms of what he did in his past. I mean, what is it about the message that people should take away from the documentary? Like, ultimately, you made it to tell his story, but what do you want them to take away from his story? I hope that people watch it and see that there's really, you know, you can really do a lot, especially with technology. You know, this is a story not only about Mike, but about young young people who they saw something broken in the world. And instead of just sitting around and complaining and being blackpilled and like, uh, you know, just depressed and dark about it, they decided to jump into the arena. And you know, and do something remarkable. And they use their technology at their fingertips uh, to do that. And I think, you know, there's a lot of problems in the world and you can turn on the news and see a lot of broken things, but it's no excuse to, you know, just be complacent. I think, um, I hope people are inspired. I hope people, you know, look into the ideas that are expressed in the film, Mike's ideas, the kids' ideas. Um, but even beyond that, you might disagree with, the things here, there, everything. But I think the important takeaway is let's get into the arena. Um, you can you can do asymmetrical things. I think your show is a good example of that. You can kind of just, you know, if, you, if the gatekeepers aren't doing what you want, um, there are ways that at your fingertips that you can jump in and do your own thing and you might even be successful at it. And, you know, in the kids' case, you know, they they weren't able to make Mike president, not that they were really trying to do that. Um, and they may, you know, people can judge their success. Uh, you can see the movie and judge for yourself. But, you know, and I think in, the, in my mind, they were successful in getting a conversation going. And I think, you know, in the, in the film, it's mentioned that, you know, one Mike Gravel campaign doesn't change the country or the world, but a thousand do. So I hope that people find their own way, their own asymmetrical movement, their own, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll look different, it'll be different, mm-hmm. but, you know, there's millions and bazillions of things people can do to get involved and, and try. So, I think, if nothing else, and I agree with that sentiment of, like, you know, this is, this is one little action that leaves its little mark on the world, but if nothing else, they were able to really educate a lot of young people about who Mike Gravel was and what it looked like to have someone who was truly courageous and stood against a lot of the powers that be, and also the way that he was treated for that. I mean, there's a reason you call it American Gadfly, because he, while doing the right thing and actually you know, being consistently anti-war and standing up to power and believing truly in democracy, I mean, that's one of his core views, and he had a lot of smart and, I think, innovative ideas about how to inject more democracy into our system, something that is really sorely needed. He was treated as like he was ridiculous, you know, pushed to the, to the side and treated like a gadfly. Um, we do have a little bit of the trailer from the film that I want to share with people. Let's take a look at that. 
I said, do you realize how old I am? He says, well, that doesn't make any difference. What we really want is the ideas that you bring forward. What he did surrounding the Pentagon Papers, it was unparalleled. Alaska's 41-year-old Democratic Senator Mike Gravel began reading aloud the 7,000-page Pentagon secret report in public. What he supports and believes for the world, positions that he's been consistent on for decades, it excites me. I think he's incredibly courageous and everything like that, and I think, uh, I think he's an awesome dude. What we needed was a moment of virality, something that would catch people's eye. From the outset, the campaign as it was put across was ruthless on a number of establishment Democrats. <laughs> it's It was fun to relive some of those moments. Um, and just for people who don't know the kind of basic contours of the story. So you have these teens who become inspired by Gravel and what he meant throughout history. They want to put certain ideas forward and they decide to, they convince him to launch a presidential campaign, their big goal is how do we get this man on the debate stage so he can say all of these incredibly critical things, you know, anti-war, anti-imperialist, um, pro-democracy. And so they set out to get, you needed 65,000 donors, small dollar donors, in order to get him on the stage. One of the, and I, I followed all of this at the time, but I actually didn't realize that Marianne Williamson ends up playing a sort of like significant role in helping them out. Um, and Marianne has become, you know, a close friend of mine. So it didn't surprise me to see that she was the candidate who was willing to reach out her hand and, and help these guys be able to realize their vision. Just talk a little bit about the role she played in this film. Yeah, I always kind of describe Marianne as sort of the Han Solo of the movie who kind of comes <laughs> in and saves the day, saves the kids. Um, Marianne's incredible and she's she's so open and 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 I think you know her voice was really unique and important on that stage. I think um you know she really was trying to get Americans to think about the cause of sickness uh you know what what uh, the cause of what's sickening America um instead of just the symptoms. Yeah, um no, Marianne's awesome and uh and I think she really admired Mike as well. And and she has a lot in common with Mike. She was also marginalized, made fun of. Um, you know, I think I think when you start to say certain things that that contradict what the power elite really wants you to know or or think about, um, they laugh at you. I mean you look at Mike on the debate stage in 07 and you know he was talking about anti-nuclear, he's talking about direct democracy, calling out people. And they're literally, you see Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, the moderators, yeah, the laughing. people, the news people laughing, laughing in his face. But it, go back and watch that, those clips. It's, it's appalling. Um, and they did the same thing with Tamari Ann, you know, uh, kind of slandering her, um, calling her hippy dippy crystal orb lady stuff. And it's total BS. Um, so I wanted to set the record straight in the film Obviously, we're telling the story of these kids and it's this adventure, but also set the record straight for people like Mike, people like Marianne, um, you know, and I think I think we succeeded in, in, in painting a more accurate picture of who these people really were and what they stood for and they and what they stand for today. So, yeah. Well, well 
I really enjoyed the film. I really recommend it to people. It's it's a fun watch. It's an uplifting watch. Um, and it made me really, really happy just to see the way that Mike Gravel was able to be sort of celebrated and reinserted into our national conversation and consciousness and made relevant again in the very last years of his life, which, like I said, if nothing else, I think, you know, he deserved all of that and more. So thank you for making the film and thank you for joining us, Guy. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, check it out. Thank you so much. It's our pleasure. Our pleasure. All right, guys, thanks so much for watching. We're going to have more for you later. I'll admit, I was shocked um, when I was online a couple of days ago, and I saw on Twitter, it was trending, John Stewart calls J.K. Rowling out for being an anti-Semite, claiming that the goblins in Harry Potter were caricatures of Jews. And I was out, I was like, why, John Stewart? Why did you now go woke? How did this possible? But then it turned out that that's not really what he said at all, that Newsweek had taken his comments out of context, and Stewart, in the classic Stewart fashion, had a message for Newsweek and for all of us. Let's take a listen. So um, we did that a month ago. A month ago. So like two COVID mutations ago, back (laughs) when we were still in like beta world or whatever, wherever we were, this is a month ago. This morning I wake up, It's trending on Twitter, and here's the headline from Newsweek. Jon Stewart accuses J.K. Rowling, 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 J.K. Rowling of anti-Semitism. So let let me let me just say this, like super clearly, as clearly as I can. Uh, Can I get a close-up? All right, you're in control of your own camera. Bring your face in. I'm in control of my close-ups. All right, let me camera one. Hello. Uh, my name is John Stewart. I do not think J.K. Rowling is anti-Semitic. I did not accuse her of being anti-Semitic. I do not think that the Harry Potter movies are anti-Semitic. I really love the Harry Potter movies, probably too much for a gentleman of my considerable age. Uh, so I would just like to say that none of that is true and not a reasonable person could not have looked at that conversation and not found it lighthearted. So let me say this instead to Newsweek. Um, Your business model is fucking arson. And not the good kind, not the good kind of arson where they light stuff and control it to prevent forest fires in the future. The kind of arson where you're on the mountain and you've got fucking five minutes and you don't know where the dogs are. Like that's your business model. And now all the shitheads pile into this ridiculously out of context nonsense. <laughs> he goes on from there. Yeah, it's worth he keeps the going. Thing. You should watch the whole thing. It's all amazing. I love it. Uh, yeah, it's like they found some comment that he made over a month ago, misconstrued it, saying that he was like slams J.K. Rowling. I mean, he was joking. He was joking yeah, around it was a about the goblins joke. at Gringotts, yeah. which, let's be honest, you and I disagree. Yeah. If you look at him, there's some tropes there. I disagree. He's ma- they he just wasn't look like, like freaking goblins. The way that yeah. they frame it right. is like he was calling for yeah. her to be canceled right. or censored, like, no, that he called her directly yeah. an anti-Semite or something like that. And it was like, it was, it was so ridiculous because— <laughs> 
as he's pointing out, I mean, they just literally sort of invented mm-hmm. a controversy. It became a big thing. There was a, there was media article. There were a lot of articles. Oh, about there it. was a lot of yeah. debate about it. And oh, what did right. he really? What did he really mean? And then this came in conjunction with Emma Watson, who of course was mm-hmm. a star in these movies. Put up a solidarity. The most banal thing ever. Uh, just solidarity Instagram post mm-hmm. um, to standing with Palestinians, and she got called an anti-Semite for that. So there was already the sentiment of like, oh, everybody's just casually right. throwing around anti-Semitism now, and now it's John Stewart. So when you read the headlines in the, that context, yes. which is what you were doing, you were like, oh, geez, now everybody's just throwing this term around like it's nothing. And it turns out, no, what was really going on was Newsweek for fun and profit was trying to stir up a stupid controversy where nothing existed. So shut up. Like, you know, it's, every once in a while, somebody will take one of our clips and uh, write it oh. up over, like, at Mediate. Yeah. And I will read what I said in print. And I'm like, you're not capturing what I was, you know, <laughs> like, I was joking or I would put something this way. Like, you have to watch this segment in totality. I'm like, oh, man. You know, like, it, it's really biting. And I'm like, yeah, but I was kind of being facetious a little bit. Anyway, look, don't believe He's a comedian. I I mean, he's a comedian. Don't believe everything that you read. Um, I don't know. Bless him for at least having the ability to speak out. And think about how many stupid ass things that you yourself or me or anybody else gets outraged about and doesn't know the fullness of it because Mm. these people are exploiting us. That's actually the key um, to all of it. Also, I love Harry Potter. So there we go. Very good points all around. Okay. All right, guys. Thanks for watching this very important segment. Enjoy your day. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from The Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 